The Stage Door Show. Celebrating the independent artist. With your host, Dave Hondell. Hi everybody, this is Dave Hondell. Welcome to The Stage Door Show. Today, I'm very excited to have today's guest, Ori Spado. Uh, author of the book Accidental Gangster, and we're going to go ahead and get into his entire life story. It's it's fascinating. I was definitely fascinated by by the book, and uh, I know you all the listeners out there will also be fascinated. So we're going to go ahead and bring him in. Ori, how you doing, Mr. Spato? I'm doing very good, David. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Um, you know, as as I said, you know, it, it's 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 fascinating book, and uh, you know, you've had a quite a colorful life. You know, you entered the army at a young age. I mean, just 18 years old. And when you came back from the military, you worked a few jobs, got into the insurance field, and did really well at it. You know, talk about starting your own insurance company because um, that's also in the book. And, and when the criminal activity began? Well, uh, I began uh, with the Prudential Insurance Company. Uh, I was a leading agent with them and a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable. I really exceeded in the insurance industry. It just came natural to me. I did really good. Uh, I, I loved it because I was helping a lot of people, uh, you know, with their retirement and their health needs and, you know, in the event of a loss of a loved one. Uh, and, you know, the accolades I got from people were amazing. Actually, just a few years ago, I had a phone call from a, a painter uh, back in Rome, New York. He got my number, and he was thanking me profusely because he says, you know, he says, you were dogging me all the time. You kept selling me and selling me. He says, I got to thank you for that. He said, without you, he says, I never would have been able to retire. Uh so, you know, things like that there make me very proud of the things that I did in the insurance agency. I uh, ended up getting involved in what's called credit, life, and accident health insurance on the financing of loans when I became an independent agent with a company named the Franklin United Life Insurance Company out of Garden City, Long Island. I sold the insurance to automobile dealer, and they sold it to their customers when they financed the car. And then I created a training session uh, for salesmen, and then uh, what we call back in those days, I was the pioneer in New York for this, of the after-sale business. So I would teach an automobile dealer how to sell a car at cost and still make $2,000 on a car. And uh, I was very successful and ended up doing millions of dollars under the Ori agency, millions of dollars a year in premiums, and I was very successful at that. Back then, uh, $2,000 was quite a bit of money. That was a lot of money in the late 60s and the 70s. Better, Better believe it. Not a lot today, but it was then. Yeah. Selling that type of insurance and, and uh, doing so well at it, I mean, did you find ways around the system, so to speak? And did that, did that, is that what kind of started, you know, the, the, the activity, that the criminal activity? Uh, what happened was a guy that was the closest to me out of Syracuse, New York, 
I brought him in with me. I gave him Syracuse and the, uh, all the cities around Syracuse as his territory. He was making a hundred grand a year with me. Plus, I got him a brand new Lincoln every year. And whenever I traveled anywhere, he traveled. He was sort of my bodyguard at the same time. He was a big guy, uh, very outgoing, but very tough, too. And he did very well. And uh, I had a deal with the insurance company, uh, People's Home Federal, which they were out of Battle Creek, Michigan at the time, and other home offices in Orlando, Florida. But they uh, they gave me a deal where, and, and this was pretty normal back in those days when insurance companies had a uh, had a leading agent. They would allow us to use the use of the premiums to build our business. As I said, I was doing okay. money. I was doing three three hundred and eighty five thousand dollars a month. He wow. found out about it. He threatened the insurance company that he would blow them into the New York State Insurance Department. They would lose their license in the state of New York, which is probably one of the most valuable licenses they have, New York and California. And uh, he tried to get them to give him the business and ended up being my first indictment, federal indictment in federal court in Syracuse, New York. I uh, was very lucky. I got five years probation. But I lost my insurance license uh, through uh, wow. my lawyer Frank Russo, whose father, whose father was the boss in Rome, Utica, in those days, that way back. Uh, mm-hmm. Frank was a lawyer, but he knew everybody around the country. And slowly but surely, he was actually grooming me. And I was meeting uh, Carlo Marcello. I met Russell Buffalino, Frank Costello, and then I met. Sonny Franchese, who I had an extremely close relationship with for over 40 years. My new book will, is ready to be shipped out this week. People could purchase it at my website, www.theaccidentalgangster.com. So if they go there, they could buy it. This is the new revised edition of The Accidental Gangster. And in this book, there are letters at the end of the book that I wrote to people, some who are alive, some who are dead. But I'd like to read a letter. You're the first one I'm doing this with that I wrote to Sonny Franchese. I want, to t- I want to tell a story. This is actually a fascinating story, Ori, uh, from your book. And, and I want to read, the, uh, just, just tell our listeners, uh, give them a little bit of background here, uh, because, I, because I think that this is really important and, and, and it was fascinating to me about Fr- Sonny Frangé's. But uh, underboss for the Colombo crime family, you know, he, he was, and, and for many, many years. And you told a story in the book that he would meet you for a meal at a nearby shopping center on a regular basis and would excuse himself to go to the restroom. And when he was in the restroom, he would crawl through the restroom window to meet with associates on the other side, side of the strip, uh, strip mall and then crawl back through the window again to meet back up with you for, for, for your meal. And because he was always under surveillance by the feds, you know, at that at that time, did you know that you, at the time that you were most likely also under surveillance just, just by being with him? You know what? Honestly, you know, I didn't think so, but I was, okay, because... Sonny Franchise and the life and who he was, 
he was followed wherever he went. And it's like I told yeah. his son, like, uh, in one of my interviews, at least now Sonny is resting peacefully and not being tailed by the FBI. But, yes, I, I lived in Little Neck, Long Island. Sonny lived in Roslyn, which was only a couple miles away. And he and I would meet every morning. Uh, it was a uh, little strip mall uh, right off the LIE in, in Little Neck Parkway. And we would meet in a little, wasn't a diner there, it was actually like a little restaurant. And Sonny would always come in, take his jacket up, put it on a chair, sit down, order his food. Then he'd say, I got to go to the bathroom. And he'd be gone for 20 minutes. And I got to be honest, I didn't know he was doing this. I didn't know until later. And uh, he wow. would go out the window of the bathroom, go to the end, other end of the shopping mall, meet with some of his crew, come back, sit down, have his breakfast. And I didn't become aware of it until there was a article, and I think it was the New York uh, Post, uh, when they found out about how Sonny evaded the FBI. He, he was doing this all over. <laughs> he also now he said he passed away. Now he passed away at age 103, which is amazing. And you know, and and he was released from prison in 2017 at age 100. And did you were you able to talk to him or or meet with him after he was released from prison in 2017 before he passed away? I spoke to Sonny once or twice every week until his death. And uh, actually, there are articles out there. People Google my name. Uh, that I'm the one who confirmed his death uh, to the to the country, to the world. Yes, we spoke. He wanted me to come back there. Sonny would not, he was still on uh, probation, and he would have gotten off in June if he would have lived, and then I could have gone back and visited him. He said, come on, buddy, we got to talk, you know. He said, you got to come in. You know how to sneak in here. I said, Sonny, I'm not going to be the person responsible for you going back to prison because at 103, they'll put you back in. Right, exactly. That's true. (laughs) I said, I'm not going to be the guy. So I actually called his probation officer, who was a lovely lady, actually. She was pretty kind. I explained to her who I was. She said, I know who you are, Mr. Spadoff. I said, listen, I said, I'm 75. He's 103. He's in a nursing home. I said, we've been friends for over 40 years. I said, we're not going to go out and rob banks. I'm just going to come visit the guy, take him out to lunch or dinner, I said. Yeah. And she says, I got checked with my supervisor. And she said, I'll call you back. The next day, she called me back. And she said, you know, I apologize, Mr. Spado. But my supervisor said that you were extremely close friends with Sonny. In addition, you're on the same indictment with him, which we were on the same indictment. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would not allow me to go visit him. One month after that, he died. Wow. You know, you said you had you had a letter. Now that we gave a little background on, on Sonny uh, and, and you and the, fr- and the friendship, you know, it would be great to hear that story and that letter. Yes, and, you know, for your listeners, uh, they could purchase my book, as I indicated, at my website. And for those out of the country who are listening, they can go to my publisher's website, 
coastalwest.ca and purchase it from there. But uh, and let me read this. Uh, this dated July 19, 2020. Dear Sonny, I remember the first time we met at Eugene's restaurant on Second Avenue when Lou Perry introduced us. You had your wife Christina, Gia, your kids, children, Gia, Johnny, and Tina. You and I whispered, and I explained the situation to you. And then we ate dinner, and I was allergic to the fish and got sick. No one ever forgot that. Then our next meet was at the Russian Tea Room on 57th Street. At the sit-down, and I felt you were not understanding the problem. So I tried explaining it in different terms, and you stared right through me and said, Keep your mouth shut. You did not have to say it twice, Sonny, as I understood immediately. But it was after that meeting outside, as we were all standing, and you grabbed my arm and walked me to the corner of 57th and Broadway and said, Kid, you got balls. From now on, you're with me, and I want you and your family at my home for Christmas. From then on, we became friends. I believe that was in 1978 or 79, and we've been friends ever since. However, you guys violated quite often, and we stayed in touch through letters and telephone. It seems every time you came home, I was in New York. Then I moved to Little Neck, and we met every day for breakfast, and on Fridays, we met at the Douglaston Manor for dinner with everyone. After that, I moved to Los Angeles but we always stayed in touch. I came back to New York on a monthly basis, and it was you and me eating breakfast at diners and lunch and dinner at so many restaurants throughout the five boroughs I cannot begin to count. It was you who taught me many things. It was you who taught me that we always are for the underdog, and to this day I do that. I still do that, and I believe in it. Thank you. Then you began staying with me at my suite at the Walworth. I'll never forget all those conversations we had in the maze closet. Sonny, we would never talk in the room. We go into the maze closet in the hallway. You got a picture of that there. Because we didn't trust the room, thinking it was bugged. More than likely it was. Then finally we all got indicted and we were at NDC together. And when we were in the discovery room, we had arguments as you seriously believe your son Johnny would not testify. But he did. The last time we physically saw each other was in the courtroom. Remember that conversation? Because we worked a bad situation out right there until the judge stopped us from talking. People ask me often, how? I can like someone who did that to me. And my answer always is because we are real men and real men work out their differences. I did my time and of course you did your time. Once you were in the nursing home, we spoke on the phone a couple times a week and I seriously wanted to come and see you. I contacted your PO. They declined me as I did not want to get you violated because of me. She told me I could in June, but you left us all before that. 
Our conversation was maybe a little over a week before you passed on. My dear friend, you now are in peace, finally, after 103 years. You always have my love and respect, and that will never change, as you were a friend and a real man amongst men in a man's world. I miss you, and once again, all my love and respect to you, Sonny. Your friend always, Ori. Oh, what a letter. I'm, uh, you know, and, and this was one of the new revisions to your book. So everybody out there, again, theaccidentalgangster.com to uh, order that book. And, uh, you know, it comes in both. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Ori, it comes in both, um, you know, book version, but also audio book as well, right? Audio book is available, yes. Oh. 75 additional pages in this book. All right, good. And, uh, you know, what is your most... You can call it a new book. And I was fortunate to get the book and, and read it, and, and uh, I was fascinated the whole way through. And just your stories uh, just were, were amazing. And, you know, what was your most memorable moment when you were with Sonny? I mean, I'm sure there's many, but uh, what was your most memorable moment together? There are so many memorable moments, but, you know, I like all the listeners, though. There was uh, at... Uh, Pizza Dance Restaurant in Brooklyn. There was a big event upstairs at the restaurant, a couple hundred people. And Sonny and I went to it. We were invited. And I remember Johnny Russo, who also has a book come out, uh, out. Johnny Russo come in, who I just saw the previous week in New York. And uh, he came in with the priest, but he sat at the table with us. But we've talked, there were a lot of friends of Sonny's all older people from the neighborhood where Sonny grew up in, in Red Hook, New York. And they all came to me, and they would tell me how much they missed Sonny and how safe their neighborhood was when Sonny was there. And, you know, people don't understand this about people like Sonny and me, but, you know, we really care about the neighborhood we're in, we look out for the people in our neighborhood. And Sonny did a great job of it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that will remember him for that there. You know, you could, people like to talk about the bad things we do, but they don't know how many good things that we do. Uh, so many moments with Sonny Franchise that I cannot, so many things he told me, particularly in the maze closet, or things he would tell me we would be driving and motions he'd make with his hands or, or over here, what he did, da-da, so forth, so on. Uh, a day with Sonny would begin in the morning with breakfast, and then before you knew it, the day would not end till maybe 9, 10 o'clock at night. And by that time, you've been to restaurants in five boroughs. I mean, the guy could eat. The guy could eat, and we never paid a tab, never had a bill. But there would be wow. meetings in every restaurant that we went to. Yeah, I mean, you know, and getting back to your um, insurance business, you know, uh, you said that your legal issues with in the book, you, you mentioned that your legal issues with your legitimate insurance business was not the reason that you were looked at as having criminal activity. It was your association with Sonny. That got the attention of law enforcement, and you, know, you were even given offered twice. It was a fact. I knew Meyer Lansky. Uh, right. Uh, they were 
they were really trying hard to make that an organized crime case, but it was impossible for them. They couldn't do it, but they tried. But you were even offered twice to be a made man with the Colombo crime family, but declined. What made you decline? Once with the Colombo crime family, once with the California crime family. What made you decline? Uh, you're probably aware of the, uh, I'll call it the interactions in some of the video, uh, some of the podcasts I did regarding Michael Franchese, things he said about me, and things I said about him. I happen to know an awful lot about Michael Franchese. Uh, it became a war, like a war between the two of us. And for our listeners, Michael is the son of Sonny. Just for our listeners, I want them to understand that Michael is the son. became an informant. First, Michael right, right. is the son of Sonny, and he became an informant, but uh, he made more money at that time in those days in the gasoline business uh, than any other uh, criminal in history. Uh, he made a lot of money, but... Uh, I never, outside of that sit-down I had with Sonny, which involved Michael, uh, I never had ever had inter- any other interaction with him. Uh, Just one time? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we've seen each other a couple times because his uh, brother Johnny was out here. Johnny was an addict. I took care of Johnny. And, uh, you know, there were a couple occasions where Michael and I trying to help Johnny out, get him into a rehab, and things like that there. Where he disappeared, we were out looking for him. Uh, I I ended that feud. Yeah, you you mentioned Michael, you know, on on the different podcasts and different shows and and interviews that you did. It was back and forth, you know, watching interviews with both of you. It seemed like it was a pretty long, long uh, standing feud, but I'm glad that you were able to get that uh, squashed, as they say. Um, But, you know, what made you decline those offers to, you know, as being a made man in those uh, two different families? And, you know, I told Michael in one of my interviews, I told Michael, I said, Michael, and I held up his book, his first book that he wrote. I said, there's something in your book. You were very astute. I said, but I picked it up, Michael, because I knew on that one thing, you were correct. You got to remember, I was an individual who knew the bosses throughout the country. I could pick up the phone and call any boss. Why would I become a made man? Because once you become a made man, they put you under somebody. Now you got to listen to that person. You can't be going to the boss. You follow me? Sure. So my relationship was always with the main guy, and that's why I refused it. I was not going to be taking orders from somebody that more than likely did not have the same intelligence level that I have. And, you know, if they told me I had to do something, you got to do it. I took my orders directly from Sonny over there and Jimmy Kachi out here in California. Now, you were 63 when you entered federal prison for 62 months on RICO charges. What what was your treatment when you were inside prison, and, and what did you think about the most while you were incarcerated? Well, what I thought about was getting a real meal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my treatment was very good. Uh, they, uh, I mean, they transported me on Con Air from... Uh, Beverly Hills back to uh, Brooklyn where I was in MDC. It was at a time where uh, there every 
every family there it was loaded with Italians, so we were very respected in prison. The Italians, uh, gangsters like I, myself, were very who did not become an informant. We were respected, and uh, the time. Look, at doing time is not good, no matter how you look at it. But my time was easier than probably than a lot of others. I was fortunate and blessed that my children were there for me. So my commissary was full every month uh, because I didn't eat in the commissary. Uh, I ate tuna fish for five years, tuna fish and mackerel. Yeah. That's what I survived on. Uh, but, uh, no, I was well-respected and, uh, you know, you keep your mouth shut, you do your time, and you stay out of people's business. Don't get involved in any of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do your time. Just do your time. Keep your mouth shut, you got no problem. Now, the mafia is a subject of many films, shows, and folklore. Basically, it's it's you know it's still, to this day, a fascinating uh, topic. And In fact, you're good friends with the uh, writer of Goodfellas to this day, and it's a very real thing, and I assume many organizations are still in operation uh, but the way crime families operate now must be way different than with the modern day technology that we have. You know, when did the mafia change, and, and what happened? Do you think? Well, you got to remember, the mafia, organized crime, whatever you want to call it, was a secret society. What happened in the shadows stayed in the shadows. Of course, people on the street knew who we were, this and that, but it was not a public thing. When the movie The Godfather came out, it it showed the, it, it made the life a glamorous life in so many ways. And it taught a lot of people, a lot of young guys who all oh, wanted to become part of it because they thought it was glamorous because it was in the movies. And now, you know, everything it no longer was a secret society after that. Now it was a well-known subject throughout the world. But people don't realize how it started, why it started. You know, we started only because we were the only ones who could take care of our own. It began in Sicily. I'm going way, way back when Sicily was one of the most evaded countries in the world. And the French took it over. And on a Sunday afternoon in the park, the Frenchmen, uh, the Italian woman, be there with a show, and the Frenchmen were raping the woman, and that's when the guys got together and they had to do something about it, and that's how it was born, and that's basically what it is. We take care of our own. So it was the movie The Godfather that actually destroyed it, because then you have people come in there who want want to be a gangster, but were not a gangster. And, uh, you know, when something happened, when the cuffs go on, they begin talking. And so, you know, I was talking with some friends in New York. I mean, you know, you got podcasts by so many informants, and the country loves them. I mean, what the hell's going on? Why do you love an informant? I can't figure it out. Why do you love somebody who's not a man? You know, the world yeah, changes. 
It does. It changes all the time. And like you said, podcasting and internet and social media, there's so many different ways to communicate and get, you know, things out, thoughts out, different, you know, ideas and so forth. And I think, I think the the world is really revolving around social media these days. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, that's social media is everything. You know, I'm on social media. I gotta be honest with you. If I didn't have a book, more than likely I would not be on it. Or if I was on it, it would just be me and my family. Uh, but it's it's the way of the world today, and you know, uh, you could talk to a five year old kid. They know much more about these computers than I'll ever know. Just what it is in today's world. People get their news. People do everything on it. That's very true. You know, you're also known as the Hollywood mob boss and Hollywood uh, Hollywood fixer, you know, helping celebrities, collecting debts and other problems that they might have. And, you know, the connections you've made over the years, like Meyer Lansky, Sonny Franches, and, you know, Russell Buffalino, just to name a few. You know, you've, you've had, you know, obviously that, that helped with leverage. But, you know, talk about the time you helped star Naomi Campbell scare away a stalker, because I thought that was very interesting. Well, Naomi Campbell... Uh Wyclef John uh, from the Fugees, uh, I was very good friends with uh, Wyclef, and uh, he uh, called me up one day because uh, he was friends with Naomi, and she had a problem with a stalker, and asked me if I would talk to her. It was around Christmas time, and uh, I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel waiting for a date who was going to be late, and Naomi just didn't live far from there. So I gave her a call and said, I'm coming over now. And she happened to be having a Christmas party. Uh, I went in there and, you know, she had the valets for the cars and so forth. And told the valet, keep my car right here. I went in, went into her office with her. Had a meeting with me. She gave me the information, told me the problem. I said, I'll handle it. And it happened to be a stalker out of Long Island, New York. It was really stalking her pretty badly. And uh, so I had a couple guys from New York who we got the address of the guy. Uh, she didn't have an address on him, of course, uh, but we got the address. We were always good at that kind of stuff. And I sent the two guys, and they got right into the house. And the guy was sitting in his chair, and obviously he was nervous. And I instructed my two guys, were you there? Call me, put me on the phone with them. They did, and I explained to them very nicely, but very sternly in my old way that I do things, that if he ever even thought of Naomi again, the next time he sees those guys, they're not going to be too friendly. And uh, I, I resolved it. And Haitian Jack was sitting on my couch, heard me that it was taken care of. He went into my dining room table. He calls Naomi and says he took care of it. Oh, wow. You know, people want to take credit. I didn't care at the time, but I had to put that in my book. Haitian Jack was also an informant. Now, you've been uh, close with some of Hollywood's biggest stars, and, and you know, you're still in L.A., of course, and without naming names, obviously, but are you still approached for assistance from celebrities when they need a fixer? Uh, once in a while, very minor stuff. 
uh, I, I, I'm close with some, uh, you know, directors and producers and agents and so forth. So. Now, my main interest now is uh, I have a A-list director writer that wants to do a TV show on the accidental gangster, and he's going to be writing it. He's a A-list actor. I cannot give his name at this time. It's not Nick Pelleggi, but Nick Pelleggi will be involved as an executive wow. producer because uh, I put the two of them together. Uh, but he's done a few films with uh, Robert De Niro and Morgan Freeman. and Actually, he had a film that was supposed to be out last month. Then they said this month, and now it's not coming out this month, obviously. But he's got a new film coming out with uh, De Niro, Morgan Freeman, Tommy Lee Jones. He's well-known. And he's a hot writer. You know, people think things happen overnight in Hollywood. It does. It takes a long, a long time. And nothing right. begins until you have the written word. If you don't have it written, there's no, somebody don't write it, you're never going to see a movie. Yeah, I've had a lot of people approach me. I turn most of them down because I have a clear uh, understanding of exactly how Hollywood works. Uh, so I know that when my program goes out there, that it's going to be sold. Ori, uh, you know, there are many personal incidents that happened, you know, from the book that you mentioned uh, that came out uh, in the book. And, you know, most people would try to hide all that past. And uh, why are you so open about it? Well, I'm open up about it because I want to help young people not get involved in their life or gangs. And I have helped a few out, so it's well worth it that I wrote my book. And for every young man that I help for to lead a normal, decent life, get a job. Because fast money, fast cars, and fast women is not going to last. You're not going to have that. All right? Because the day will come that you're going to die from a bullet or you're going to end up in prison. Uh, it's not the glamorous life that people think that it is. It's a life that becomes so ingrained in you that, you know, you don't do nothing without looking over your shoulder, knowing your surroundings everywhere you're going. You walk into a restaurant, a bar, a nightclub, you got to know who everybody is. Where everybody's sitting, you got to know everything, okay, because you don't know who, what, why. You have to be very, very careful. And, you know, you're not only looking for enemies of yours, but you got to look for the federal law, the local law, because they're all after you. I mean, I used to look up my patio and my street. I mean, I can tell you, there'd be 10, 12 cars. I couldn't, I, I didn't know which one was the FBI or which ones was the Los Angeles Organized Crime Task Force. Ori, was there a point in your life that you just that you sat there and you, you just knew that you were too far in at that point that to turn around, turn back? I mean, what and, and what was that point? 
You know, when I got involved with the Queen Mary, I remember I was involved in a lot of shit. I was really tired of being followed. And I remember I went to the Queen Mary one day and I sat in my car and looked at that big ship because I had a meeting with the president. And I said, you know something, Ori? This year, fucking card. You could turn your life around. And the Queen Mary became the best gig I ever had in my life. I was making freaking seventeen, twenty-two thousand a month legitimate money from the Queen Mary. But you know something? Oh. When you're involved in a life that's still not enough, and other opportunities came along that were not legal, and you know, all right, I'll do this. I could pick up a couple hundred grand here. I could pick up a hundred there. Uh, things like that there, and. And you still go on and do it. Uh, I didn't really learn my lesson until I went to prison. And like I said, I was with so many, so many guys. I mean, uh, my friend Dino Saracino, he got 50 years. My friend Charlie Carniglia, he got life. People that I know that have been in prison who have passed away in prison. You know, is it worth it? No, I enjoy my freedom. Life is good. If you could turn back the cl- if you could turn back the clock, Ori, what uh, would you have done anything differently? Well, if I had the ability to turn back the clock, I would have stayed with my first wife and just l- try to live. I, I was a good salesman, uh, and I could have sold anything I wanted even after I lost my insurance license. But, you know, this is my life. I take full responsibility for it. I don't blame nobody for it except myself. And I really don't have any regrets. I did what I did. I paid my dues. Never informed on anybody. I could hold my head high. Look in the mirror. I like who I see. But I do not advise the life for anybody. There's so many people out there that, that, you know, have that type of past and they just never real, you know, they never um, get to a point, I guess, that they have a normal life. I think it just kind of consumes them. And the fact that you kind of hit that rock bottom, I guess, in, in prison that, you know, we're able to think about it and come out and try to help others get away from that. I think it's uh, it's admirable. So, um, you know, I just want to tell our listeners one more time, you know, theaccidentalgangster.com, you can order the book on there. It's a fascinating read. Um, I, I, I read it myself and just fascinating uh, material and just the life. The whole, I mean, from when you were a child uh, all the way through, uh, very fascinating life. So I just, uh, you know, encourage uh, the listeners to go out and uh, get that book, uh, theaccidentalgangster.com. And I, I appreciate uh, taking the time today, uh, Ori, to come on my show and, and talk about your experiences. And, and thank you so much for spending time with me today. My pleasure, David. And all the best to you. And happy holidays, yeah. everybody. Yeah.